Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. I'm not much of a writer, but this is the creepiest thing that has ever happened to me. And I've wanted to get it off my chest beyond what my coworkers know. And yes, this is actually a true story. Obviously, a lot of the specifics have been altered for confidentiality, but the story itself is true, and one I've wanted to write for a long, long time. I am a social worker, I have been for five years, and I've seen a lot in my line of work but absolutely nothing compares to this one case. In college, I got my degree in psychology and specialized in psychological trauma. I worked my way through until I was a full social worker working with kids 8 to 18. Many of my cases were not kids with trauma, but I was always assigned the most challenging cases due to my education and psychological trauma is one of the most difficult types of mental health issues to work with effectively. I'm explaining this because despite all of my education and experience, I could never identify anything remotely connected to any sort of trauma to explain this 13-year-old boy's behavior. Background of the case. I was referred by a school counselor for general misbehavior, an opposition in class. He was never violent or aggressive to staff or peers, but he constantly tested boundaries and made people uncomfortable. He had constantly shifting friends, and often his former friends reported he was very charming at first, but would eventually become more and more uncomfortable and manipulative. By the time he was referred, he was a bit of a loner, and had only one identifiable friend. His school counselor suspected abuse at home, because this type of behavior is very typical for traumatized and abused kids. This is why I was assigned. The first day of the case, I called the family beforehand, as I always do, and complete a general safety assessment to understand any potential risks I'm walking into. As you can imagine, going into households is always a risk in this line of work. The family seemed very normal over the phone. No weapons in the house, a safe neighborhood. Family were courteous and polite. All very good signs. I submitted my assessment practically blank due to how normal they seemed. Their house was impressive. Not a mansion, but definitely upper middle class. Father was a lawyer and worked out of a home office, and thankfully had plenty of time for his family. Mom was unemployed at the time, but was a former educational specialist before staying at home full time. Both parents were very supportive, very open, and easy to work with. Trust me, you have no idea how difficult most parents can be. At first I met my client's two younger siblings, let's call them Mark and James. Both of them were very bright for their age and easy to talk to. They didn't seem to have anything notably wrong with them. However, I had just some general feeling that there was something they weren't telling me, something that they were hiding from even their parents. It's something I honestly believe the parents didn't notice. But after my years of experience, it was a gut reaction I felt. Lastly, 
I met him, my client. Let's call him Chris. Chris was noticeably different from the family. He didn't smile when I first met him. He was pleasant enough to talk to, but he just felt off. Like the type of feeling you get when you meet someone and just feel uncomfortable, but can't pinpoint a reason. After talking to all of them, it was clear that there was no significant source of serious stress or trauma in the family. Positive community supports, attentive parents, lovely family, stable income, everything a family could want. His parents did not see any serious trouble with Chris. They said he had some executive functioning problems, got frustrated quickly with stuff, and had typical teenager behavior by pushing boundaries and being oppositional. They were more than willing to accept help, but believed the school was overreacting. The next session I had was a one-on-one -on -one with Chris. That session will always stick out to me. It was noticeably uncomfortable. He would constantly pry for information about my personal life, which was very typical for my clients, but in this case, it just felt like it was more than curiosity. He was fishing for information, like specific information. He wanted to learn about me like he was plotting something. I'm extremely good with boundaries, so it wasn't hard to deflect his questions and catch on to his clever games. For him trying to trick me to give away more of my personal life, he got frustrated with me because he could see I wasn't someone he could play around with. I fully expected him to say he never wanted to see me again. But surprisingly, at the end of our session, he said, I had fun today. I'm looking forward to seeing you again. Those words chilled my heart. It was just the way he said it. I can't fully explain it. But it was one of the first times in my job where I truly felt nervous. Months go by, and things start to become more clear at home. The parents confessed that things were worse than they were willing to admit. Chris totally ran the house, and they were too scared to admit to themselves they've lost control. Dad actually had been burying himself in work, locking himself in his room, and only coming out to binge on family activity when he felt comfortable. Mom was actually a nervous wreck, but was very good at hiding it. She spent the most one-on-one -on -one time with Chris and the family, and out of everyone, was the one to work with him the best. Still, you could tell it was wearing down on her. His brothers, however, they avoided him at all costs. They never said why, and always provided reasonable excuses for avoiding him, but you could tell something was wrong. Chris began to get progressively more open and honest in session, always tested my boundaries, but at least was able to explain his feelings and thoughts. As I worked more and more with him, I could tell he truly had no empathy for those around him. He wished that people would just listen to him and felt sad that no one can put up with him. But really it was because people would get driven away once he tried to control them and manipulate them into doing what he wanted. Despite being an impenetrable wall to him, Chris really liked me. Definitely saw me as a challenge, but... Also, I became the one person who he could open up to. Because of this, I felt confident that I could make a difference with him. He listened to me, and it sounded like he took my advice to heart. Still, every session he would end it by saying in a baby voice, Make sure you're a good boy until I see you next, okay? I always minimized it by treating it like a joke. But still, I fully recognized it as a warning sign. 
Unfortunately, it was only the first warning sign. One day, we were talking about pets and animals, and the use of them as coping skills. His parents were debating getting a pet, and I thought it was a good opportunity to learn how to build coping skills with them. Chris said he really liked dogs and really wanted one. He expressed how he really craves that unconditional love, and I thought this was all great. It wasn't until I learned that his idea of unconditional love was a being that would obey him utterly. I tested this by talking to him about having a cat, a pet definitely less inclined to taking orders. His response was chilling. He said that he hated cats. They annoyed him. He said the neighbors had a cat that stayed outside and he hated it. In fact, he actually said that one day he kicked it because it was bothering him too much. I asked what happened to the cat, and he said that it thankfully ran away. I knew this was bad. Remorselessly hurting animals is a big sign of serious problems. I turned this case into a high-priority case for my office afterwards, and we kept a very close eye on it. Still, despite doing this, there was something I and my whole team clearly couldn't see. We knew it was there, but we couldn't see it. Things got slowly worse at home, especially during the approaching winter. I now had a family specialist working on the case, helping with behavioral interventions, and frankly, with help just living with Chris and his ability to control the house. I still worked one-on-one -on -one with Chris. One day I came over and he was building a snow fort, a very elaborate one with multiple rooms. It was honestly impressive. He played games with his siblings and one friend, one of which was some cops and robbers game. He even made a mini prison room. I went into this prison room and I noticed bones embedded in the snow. At first I was curious, but not even shocked or worried. A lot of 13 year olds are curious about animal bones and it's not developmentally abnormal. Still, probably not appropriate for a jail. I asked him about it, and he said it was from a squirrel that must have died right before the winter. This is something entirely possible. They had a forest in their backyard, and it wasn't the first dead squirrel they found. I asked him to toss out the bones out of respect for his siblings playing the game, and he agreed and pulled them out. As he took them out, I saw the animal's skull. It wasn't a squirrel's skull. I confronted him and said that this wasn't a squirrel's skull. It looked like a cat's skull. His face went blank and he challenged me. He said that I didn't know what I was talking about and that it was a squirrel's skull. I pressed more and he eventually cut me off and said, I don't want to talk about this. I'm removing the bones. What more do you want from me? I was scared. That was definitely a cat's skull. And if I had to bet, I bet I knew exactly which cat. A few months more went by and I did everything for this family. It started taking more of a toll on me now, and I didn't even realize it at first. I had nightmares, and his words would echo in my head, but I didn't want to give up. I worked on cases that would also chill your soul to hear about, yet it was this case that kept me up at night. We went through three different family specialists during this time, who would all leave for various reasons. But honestly, I could tell. They didn't want to work with this family anymore. They knew something else was wrong, but couldn't tell what. It scared them. I don't blame them for leaving, but I didn't give up. I wanted to find some solution for them. I wanted these nightmares to stop. 
But most of all, I wanted to know that missing link. What was going on that I knew was happening? Something that I couldn't figure out. Eventually, it came to light. I got a phone call at 9pm one night that I'll remember for the rest of my life. We need you to come over right now, the father said. We discovered something. My heart went cold, and I went over immediately. The family was grim. Chris himself looked scared, and this was something I never saw before. It took a lot of prying, but the truth came to light. During bedtime, the father walked up and noticed the door cracked. He opened the door just to check in and saw something that finally solved the situation. The father walked in on Chris sexually abusing one of his younger brothers. They didn't get into specifics, and I didn't want them to. Hearing that made me feel sick. How long has this been going on? How did I not notice the signs? I've worked with dozens of sexually abused kids, and I knew the signs. Yet I completely missed this. I told them I had to step out to make a phone call, but really, it was because I was ready to throw up. I came back and checked in with both siblings. The other sibling, James, insisted he had no idea and that this wasn't happening to him, but I knew this wasn't true. Mark was quiet, mostly. It was obvious that this was something that has gone on for a long time, but he had very little to say about it. The only thing he told me was that he wanted it, that he asked Chris for this. Hearing this only made me more sick. Then there was Chris himself. This was the first time he had no excuses and no lies. He begged for forgiveness and finally fully admitted to being sick and needing help. It was obvious what my next move was. I called Child Protective Services. The next day I was waiting to hear about how one or more of the children were removed for their own safety. Yet when I came back I was shocked. Everyone was. They closed the case. They told me straight to my face that it was a misunderstanding and that sexual behavior between siblings at their age is not extremely uncommon and not indicative of abuse. This is true to a degree. In this case it was crystal clear. What happened while I was gone? What did they say? I fully suspected Chris to minimize it, but in order for this worker to not open the case, they all had to minimize it. I asked the family afterwards what happened, and they told me they were just as surprised as I was. It was clear they weren't. I was worried how this would affect Chris's ego. I'm sure you can imagine that something like this would make him cocky and feel invincible. Yet it didn't. Chris was cautious and worried. He was on edge, and he knew that he screwed up. Yet I don't fully believe he saw what he did as wrong. The following months I struggled. The nightmares got worse, and I had trouble working with the family. Clinically, I should have switched with a co-worker, and it was a mistake to not transfer the case. I just didn't want to give up. I needed to do something more than ever. The family was in shambles. The months following were worse than ever. Chris was actually much more behaved. He was different. More nervous and cautious, but more suspicious too. I felt like his manipulations were more subtle than ever, 
I felt like he was now playing the long game with his manipulations. The mom had daily breakdowns. She began to disassociate often and was noticeably a different person. The dad appeared fine, stoic almost, yet he sometimes never left his office. He would lock himself in there for days at a time. And the siblings, the poor siblings, they were more quiet than ever. Like I said, the family has never been this bad. I won't list everything, but trust me when I say I did everything I could for them. Made referrals for trauma therapists for the siblings. I looked into residential schools for Chris. I fought Child Protective Services on their decision. I even took on the role of a family support specialist, because all of the others stopped working with them something my supervisor directly told me not to do. Things were grim. I started to lose hope, but then I made a breakthrough. Chris started to open back up to me and started to vent about his feelings and worries of being alone. I took the opportunity to teach him something that may have saved the family. After the years of working with him, I knew that I couldn't teach Chris to feel empathy but I might be able to teach him to emulate it as long as he learned that being empathetic was actually in his own best interest. It took a while, but it worked. He improved relationships with his whole family. His siblings, still traumatized, but started to feel more comfortable. He even made two new friends. He finally learned that all these behaviors were only hurting him, and despite not being able to fully empathize, acting that way worked out for him. I'm not sure what happiness actually feels like to Chris, but it looked like he started experiencing something that finally resembled happiness. And finally, finally, he stopped being creepy to me after every session. Things were going up, and the nightmare stopped for me too. A few months later, the family ended up moving to an even nicer house. This house was out of my coverage area, Yet I worked for the duration of my insurance authorization to help with the transition. The transition went well, and Chris was even able to attend summer camps, something the family never felt comfortable with. Unfortunately, I never got a traditional farewell session due to insurance complications. Despite that, I felt comfortable leaving on the positive note that I did. I haven't seen or heard from the family for a number of years, but definitely remembered them. The case always stuck out with me. But recently something changed. I got a text message from the mom out of the blue. All it said was, we need help. I started to type a response trying to help them reach out for the appropriate surfaces in their area. I could get into a lot of trouble if I directly worked with them without authorization, but I still cared. Before I finished, she typed back, Immediately, please, I beg you, please come over right now. We need help. It was clear I needed to call them. They most likely would need to call 911 for whatever was going on. Yet when I called, the phone went straight to voicemail. I consulted with my supervisor and she agreed I should call 911. I did and the police went over quickly due to the family's history. Hours later, the police called me and asked if I could come over to the house. Normally, I wasn't allowed to do this, but I got special permission given that the police were asking for my assistance. I drove for quite a while and I was dreading the worst. 
yet I wasn't prepared for what I saw. The police escorted me into the house, and I was shocked. The house was empty. Nothing was destroyed. No damage. Nothing thrown around. Just missing basically everything. Yet it was clear that they were just home. Food was sitting on the dinner table, and just recently went cold. It looked like they somehow stopped whatever they were doing, and just loaded every important piece of belonging and left. How they did this in the hours they had was unbelievable. A month has gone by, and the police have been searching for them without luck. They have contacted me multiple times to ask if I heard any word, but I haven't. No one knows what happened to them. I've stopped hearing from the police or anyone really by now, but I still wonder what happened. I might never know what actually happened, but I'll certainly never forget this. I don't take this word lightly, but Chris was, and is, a true psychopath. I don't believe in ghosts, demons, or monsters, and I don't need to. People like Chris walk among us, and most of the time, we never even know about it. My phone buzzed. A text from Eric read, Come on, please. My treat. Royal House is like the best restaurant in the city. Four stars, or, or five stars. How many stars can a restaurant get? It has the max number of stars. I smiled, sadly. Then I sighed and typed, I'd love to, but you know I can't. Ma'am? A moment later, Eric shot me an annoyed emoji, followed by, We can ask for plastic cutlery when we're there. No, that's embarrassing. They'll have, like, a thousand reflective services there, Eric. Plates, wine glasses, food trays. Thank you for understanding. We can go anywhere else, though. Ma'am? I looked up. The handyman was standing in the hallway, waving me down. I followed him to my bathroom, but stopped at the threshold of the door when I saw the light was on inside. You want to join me in here? No, thank you. He furrowed his brow but didn't press me. Ah, uh, okay, well, here's the deal. Mirrors built into the wall. Ain't as simple as taking down a painting, you know? Oh? And what do you say was wrong with it, exactly? Ain't like mirrors can stop working right, unless they're broken. No, it's not. I, I mean, it, it works fine. I'm just trying to do some remodeling. He stared at me, eyebrow cocked, and blinked once. Remodeling? Mm-hmm. And that requires you to take down your bathroom mirror. Mm, yeah. Again, he sensed I didn't want to discuss it further and moved on. Well, we can schedule an appointment and I can take it down for you, but it ain't going to be cheap and I'd need written permission from the owner of the building. I gulped. Damn it. Permission? No, 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 no. He wouldn't. I mean, he might, but I pay rent here and he said I can rearrange. This isn't rearranging, ma'am. Or remodeling. This is restructuring. We'd have to do permanent work to the wall behind the glass. Once you take down something this size, you can't just put her right back up. I stared at the thing in defeat. I'm sorry, he said. I really am, but I don't see how we can get this done without going through the proper channels, you know. I nodded. Aight, he said. Well, you got my number if the landlord says we can get started, okay? I nodded again, holding back tears. He pushed his way past me. At the apartment door, he stopped, bag in hand, and looked over at the TV with a throw rug tossed over top. 
Can I just ask, what is it about mirrors that scares you so much? Don't mean to. Thanks for coming by, I said, shutting the door and cutting him off. I heard a mumble, psycho, under his breath and head off. I slumped up against the door and fell back down, grabbing my hair in fistfuls. They always ask why. They always have to know. I never should have rented this damn place. On the counter where I'd left it, my phone buzzed again. I got up and checked. Three messages from Eric. Ah, fine. Maybe we can do something outside. Then, would that work? Then, you there? As I read through them, a fourth popped up. Talk to me, Anna. I'm worried about you. I typed in, Sorry, I was talking to the maintenance guy. I'm okay. No, I'm not. To change the subject, I quickly followed up with, Movie in the park is tonight. Want to do that? He gave the message a thumbs up, and I gave the same to his response. Meet me there at seven? Then I plopped on the couch with cereal, opened my laptop, and typed in DIY remove bathroom mirror. There was a YouTube video matching that, so I clicked on it and leaned back with my breakfast. Then the screen went dark, and I saw the briefest possible reflection of myself. Shit! I panicked, spilling half my bowl onto my PJs as I slammed the screen down. Milk missed the laptop by an inch and covered the couch cushions. I didn't even bother cleaning it up. Not yet. I breathed heavily, eyes closed. Hello. Miss me? No, nope, nope, you, you're fine. You didn't hear that, and you barely saw anything. I got my bearings, slowed my breathing, and searched for the cause of the dead computer. Found it quickly enough, the charger wasn't plugged in. I fixed that and forced myself to think of something, anything else, while I cleaned up the milk and cereal. You didn't see it. Baseball. Baseball carts. You kind of did, though, didn't you? Baseball, uh, diamonds, uh, baseball bats, you definitely did. World Series, uh, who won last year? Yankees, probably. Don't they always win? You saw your face. And it's freaking ugly. Yankees, uh, Babe Ruth, uh, Babe Ruth bars, candy bars, you bitch. Snickers, Milky Way, the, the Milky Way Galaxies, Andromeda. You ugly bitch. I never watched that show or Battlestar Galactica. You know you saw me. You know you saw that zit. I wonder if there are any good sci-fi shows. Probably don't have the best budget. Star Trek was a big deal though. Eric saw that zit. And he didn't say anything. He doesn't actually love you. Star Trek. Star Wars. Yoda. Speaking backwards. Always thought that was funny. Eric hates you. He mocks you. He screws other women. Luke Skywalker. Skies. Big beautiful skies. Probably Beth or Melissa. He always thought they were cuter than you because they are. He doesn't love you. Beautiful skies. Ugly you. He's using you to get to them. Before I even knew what was happening, I had my laptop back open. I couldn't resist. I looked at my reflection again. There was a zip. Huge. Ugly. Pulsating. Then the device booted back up, and the image was gone. I felt my face, but couldn't feel anything there. No blemish. No zit. It's there. The voice in my head. Your mind is lying to you, Anna. But I am not. It's there. 
I stood at the threshold of the bathroom for a very long time before I walked inside, and I stood in front of the mirror even longer before turning the lights on, but I couldn't only look at my reflection for a split second once the room was lit. I gasped and buried my face in my hands. Look at me. No, no, I don't look like that. I, I can't. You do. I peeked back out from between my fingers. There it was. Left cheek. How had I not seen it before? How long had I been walking around like that? I felt my face. Something that big, that infected looking. It'd have to have hurt, right? But I felt nothing. My face was smooth. Don't trust your mind. Trust me. I walked up to the mirror, leaned in. The thing was red, bright red, like an insect bite but worse, festering, moving, utterly disgusting. I ran to the kitchen, grabbed some lemon juice, applied it to a cotton swab, and held that to my face for some time, while I tried and failed to distract myself with some trashy TV. But when I got back to the bathroom, I was horrified at the result. The zit looked bigger somehow. What? How? I squeezed the skin of my cheek. In the mirror, the blemish oozed with pus and slime. You deceased bitch. Look at you. You think Eric wants to see you like this? I stopped, looked up a bit. And what's that? A unibrow? Have you no pride in your appearance? I felt the space between my eyebrows. It felt smooth. But the image didn't lie. Maybe it had been a while since I'd plucked. See? I show you who you truly are. I blinked away tears and scrambled through my drawers, tossing floss and tampons and cotton swabs and bandages to the floor. I couldn't find any tweezers. Disorganized bitch. I screamed and ran back to my room, the place with no mirrors and the curtains always drawn closed, and fumbled around the drawers there. I did the same. Tossed pens. Notebooks. Pills. My old diaries. Buried at the bottom in dust. Got him. I grabbed the tweezers and ran back into the bathroom. But I stopped cold again, before I even started plucking. Yes. Your nose has always been that crooked. Bent. Hooked. Like a witch. I got in close. Moved the tip up and down and around. Want to know why you're never noticed? Because you're as stupid as you are ugly, and without me you'd have never known. I felt something wet fall down my face and wiped it. Tears. I hadn't noticed them either. Pathetic. The TV was on, but I was too distracted to my phone to pay any attention. Rhinoplasty options, prices, local doctors, free consulting... Did I really want to get a nose job from a place that offers free consulting? Could I afford not to? On the TV, swimsuit models pranced around behind some before and after shots of a woman who lost 73 pounds on a new diet supplement. Another man had lost 41 pounds and looked great. God, they're beautiful. Look at them. Chiseled. Happy. Perfect. I looked down. I didn't look fat, but come back to me. I'll show you who you are. I turned sideways in the bathroom, checked out my profile. It was a wonder my shirt didn't burst open with how hard it was straining against my own belly. 
When did I get so fat? You cow. You fat cow. I looked down. My shirt was baggy. My stomach was flat when I ran my hand down it. No, don't go there. Don't you dare. This is how you got fat in the first place. You trick yourself into thinking you're not. Then you go for another drink, a second slice, another piece of candy from the bowl. Look at you. I did. The image was clear. I'd gained at least 40 or 50 pounds, maybe more. I teared up. You knew you shouldn't have had the ice cream last week, but you did it anyway, you fat bitch. I shut the lights off, stared at my obese silhouette in the dark, and sobbed silently. In the kitchen, I cut a single piece of celery into four parts and ate one. When I finished puking it up, I tossed the rest and glanced at the fridge. Empty it. I did. I grabbed trash bags from beneath the sink, opened the fridge, got on my knees, scoured around the shelves. I picked up a block of cheese, turned it over in my hand. Trash it. Shredded. Cheddar. That old Swiss. All of it. Probably moldy anyway. I tossed it all into a bag, leaned back into the fridge. Milk. What do you need milk for? Coffee? Cereal? Things that make you fat. Into the bag it went. Apples. Fruits fattening, they say. Stick with the veggies. Maybe not even that. I tossed my apples. The half-empty bag of grapes. The avocados. After a moment's hesitation, I tossed the carrots too. Trash, trash. Like you. Creamer? Ditch it. Orange juice? Pathetic. Out. Leftover takeout. I made you didn't eat it all at once. Gone. I tossed every fattening, disgusting thing in that fridge until it was empty. Cabinets. I threw them open, trash bag in hand. Spaghetti? Do you enjoy buying new and bigger pants every month? Trash it. Eating makes you fat. Soup too. Out. I scrolled through old photos in bed. They're all perfect. Beth. Melissa. Addie. Becca. But not you. Look how ugly you look. Hooked nose, unibrow, yellow, crooked teeth. That big, fat gut. That's why you're off to the side. They didn't want you there at all, but they're too nice to say anything. I commented below one of the Facebook photos. Delete this, please. A moment later, Beth wrote back. What? Why? You okay? No, I'm not. She would have known that if she cared at all. I didn't respond to her comment. Or the message I got from her a moment later. Hey, you okay? We miss you. Liar, liar, why would anyone miss you? I know. I alone tell the truth. I know. I typed out and deleted three or four different responses before giving up. A moment later, my phone buzzed. I wiped my tears, checked it. Eric, of course. Uh, wow. That sucks. I was really looking forward to seeing you tonight. You sure? I didn't even respond. I just rolled over and wept until I fell asleep. If they can't tell you the truth, are they really your friends? Be alone with me here in the deep. The knife dug deeper. 
the wound bled freely, just like the other cuts and scrapes that covered my face and arms. You deserve the pain. Dig harder. I did. But in the mirror, the zit, now one of dozens, went nowhere. I ran my hand over my face. I still couldn't feel the pimple there. I could feel those cuts and see them too. Hideous. A patchwork of self-inflicted scars that wouldn't go away quickly. Worthless whore. You've made it worse. Have you ever done anything else? Foundation. Concealer. Lots and lots of that. Lipstick. Mascara. Eyeshadow. Primer. Powder. I bought most of it last week. It was almost all gone now. Caked in overlapping layers on my face. I checked the mirror. It barely worked. The zit still visible. Hell. Unibrow? Too ugly to cover up. No matter how hard I tried. Or how frequently I plucked. And I can't fix that nose with makeup. Or my teeth or my frizzled hair. Or how one eye is lower than the other. Or how my cheeks are somehow too gaunt and too fat at the same time. I smeared that shit all over anyway. Obsessively. It mixed together. Formed layers. Crusted over. More. More. Never enough. Just like you. I tossed another empty pen on top of ripped out photos of myself that laid all over the bedroom floor. I uncapped another ballpoint and scribbled over a yearbook photo already smeared with the word ugly and an arrow pointing to my face. You've always been this hideous. Unworthy. I tossed the photo. Not enough. Stomp on it. I did. Rip it. It represents you. It is you. Tear it. I did that too. Over and over until the biggest piece of it was hardly a centimeter wide. Screaming. Teeth grit. Crying with rage and vicious hatred. I kicked the pile of torn photos, but smacked my toe against something solid and screamed. When I plopped back down on the bed, I picked it up. It was my old diary. I opened it, flipped through. Drawings, scribbled notes, written by me as a child, then as a teen. Shut that. Focus. In one drawing, a demonic beast stared back at normal little me from the other side of the mirror. Wait. Listen to me. Not that, you fat whore. I kept reading. Don't listen to the mirror monster. Read one entry. No. It's not you. Fourteen-year-old me had written on another page. It's something else. Something evil. Can I be evil if I speak the truth? It lies. No. The mirror doesn't lie. I don't lie. Your friends do. You do. To yourself. You're reading lies now. The imposter distorts your reflection. It isn't you. Does it? Do I? Come to me again, Anna. See what you are. Through my eyes. Or are you afraid? Shut up. What did you say to me? Shut up. I beat you once. You didn't beat me. I flipped to another page in the diary. 
No mirrors. No monster. I'd written over and over. No mirrors. No monster. No mirrors. No monster. I'd broken or covered every mirror, avoided them ever since. See, you ran from me. From the truth. Coward. You can't confront it, because I'm right about you. You know I am. Stop it. You are mine. Mine. Stop it. I screamed aloud. In my head something cackled. No mirrors. No monsters. No mirrors. No monster. No mirrors. No monster. No mirrors. No monster. With resolve, I went into the living room and hurled my laptop into the TV. Both shattered. The TV fell over and slipped behind its stand with a crunch. Missed me. I grabbed a screwdriver from the drawer and undid the brass doorknob. In it, my demonic reflection, the imposter, mocked me, sticking out its tongue, pulling at its face. It wasn't my reflection at all. I wasn't doing those things. I saw it mouth the word harlot and heard the scream in my head. When they were loose enough, the knobs clattered to the floor. The door creaked open. I stood up, grabbed a book, went to the bathroom, hit the lights. In the mirror, the imposter mocked me, did things I wasn't doing. It pretended to smear makeup on its face, like I'd done. I felt a powerful urge to do the same, but resisted. Then it pretended to gouge zits to purge food. Suddenly I wanted more than anything to do both. But I didn't. I lifted the book. It stopped trying to puppet me and instead stared me down. The embodiment of all my insecurities. Its eyes were wild and wicked and full of hate. What are you? Do it. It mouthed. As usual, I heard it in my head. All at once I realized it sounded nothing like me at all. Like my own thoughts. Show your metal. I screamed and hurled the book into the glass. Slam. It chipped. I picked the book up and did it again. Crack. The chip spidered. The imposter grinned. In the broken glass it looked even more distorted. More evil. Suddenly it threw itself forward and pounded its fist on the other side of the glass, mocking my attempts to break it. I stumbled back, startled. Then it barked at me like a dog, over and over. I was paralyzed with fear. I shut my eyes. No mirrors. No monster. No mirrors. No monster. No mirrors. No monster. I hurled the book again and again. Smash. Crack. Slam. The mirror splintered. Cracked then shattered into a million shards. The reflection was gone. Am I? It cackled again. I collapsed weeping. All my resolve. My determination. And I just... You are mine. Didn't. Mine. Have it. Stop it. Please. No. I broke you. I broke you. I cried. I had no answer. I was so weak. So tired. Outside the door creaked open. Hello? It was Eric. I perked up and opened my mouth to speak, to call out, but I couldn't. I looked down at the broken shard of glass. The imposter had covered its mouth, 
I couldn't scream. I heard Eric stop short. He must have seen the TV smashed and the bags of food still by the fridge. Oh my God, he said. Anna, Anna. He began running around the place looking for me. Anna. Look at me, said the imposter. Will you want him to see you like this? I picked up the shard of glass. The imposter stared back, a vicious, mutated mockery of my image. It raised its wrist, pretended to slash it. Suddenly I felt cold and dead inside, utterly without hope. Do it, it mouthed. Pay for your worthlessness and blood. It mimed another slash, right across the wrist. I wanted to obey. Anna! I heard Eric barge into my room. Where are you? I didn't even notice it, but I'd already extended my other wrist. How did you... Remember to whom it is you belong. Obey. Obey. I raised the shard to my wrist, pressed the tip of the glass into my skin until it drew blood. I deserve this. Do it. End it. End me. Silence me. Silence it all. I shut my eyes. It was all I wanted. Anna. I opened them, looked up. Eric was standing in the bathroom door, and suddenly I wanted to end it all just a little bit less. Oh my God, he said. Your mom told me to check in on you. Oh my God. Oh God. He didn't even ask about the mess or the shard at my wrist, or my cuts and scrapes and bruises. He just got down and hugged me and kissed my forehead. I dropped the glass. No, focus. I thought you were dead, said Eric. He sounded genuinely relieved. For some reason that surprised me. He leaned back, looked at the mess, looked at me. Let's get you cleaned up, okay? Come on. I didn't want to move. I just hugged him and cried. Hey, he said. It's okay. You're okay. Come here. He started crying too, just a bit. Stop this. No. Obey me. I choose not to. You unworthy bitch. Slut. His love is false. No. You are. Don't you defy me. You hear me. Whore. Heartlet. Worthless. Enough. Eric squeezed me tighter. I did the same back. I heard a whisper in my head. Then silence. My phone buzzed. It was Eric. I picked it up. Hey, you ready? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, I'm doing my makeup. I'll be right out. Okay, I'm outside. Gotta get back in 15. I know, I'm coming. Love you. You too. I hung up and resumed applying my makeup, normal amounts of it, in the fixed bathroom mirror on the wall. Look at me. I'm busy. I have to do my makeup. Look at me. I'm you. Nah, you're not. In the mirror, the imposter spat at me, stuck out its tongue, pulled at its face, mimed suicide. Utterly desperate and just as powerless because that's how I wanted it. I capped the lipstick. Damn, I look good. 
I said out loud. Then I hit the lights, left the bathroom, passed the new TV and the fridge stocked with leftovers, and ran outside into the sun.